today picks up where the Old Testament reading left off and carries us into the next chapter, chapter 40. I'll start by reading it, starting in Isaiah 39, 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Children, have you ever had to wait for something? Waiting for things can be hard, can't it? I wonder if any of you know how many days it is until Christmas. I counted it. I think I, think I got to about 26, depending on how you count it. That's coming up, but you know, maybe it still seems like a long time. Are you excited about Christmas? Are there things you're looking forward to? Maybe you're asking for some presents. I know I am. This year I asked for a book about an ancient Egyptian beetle that I want to know more about. And I'm pretty excited because I think it's going to be an awesome book. But it can be hard to wait for things, can't it? This is the first Sunday of Advent. What does that mean? Well, Advent is arriving, showing up coming, and we're remembering the time that Jesus came, was born, God become a human being, a little baby. We're also remembering how long people had to wait for that to happen. And they were so excited about what God had told them about who was going to come and save them, but they had to wait a long time. Do you think 26 days is a long time to wait? What about 100 years? Would that be a long time to wait for something? What about 700 years? That sounds like a pretty long time. I don't know if I could wait 700 years to get my Christmas presents. Well, as we're going to see today, the prophecies that we read about Jesus and Isaiah were something that people had to wait a long time for to receive. Today I'm going to give us kind of an introduction to Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. Uh, some of you know that that's what I'm working on for my PhD. And I'm hoping that when, as I get opportunities in the preaching schedule to preach some of this as well. So it's not just an academic exercise, but that I get to think about how God has spoken to his church in these chapters. And I hope to share that with you. Um, many of those sermons will be much more exegetical than this one. This is a more introductory one. I want to give us kind of an overview of these passages of Scripture and think about what God has to say to us in them. Actually, though, I want to focus on one particular question. And that is the question... Who wrote Isaiah chapters 40 to 66? Now that might seem like a strange question to ask. 
If you turn to Isaiah 1.1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Doesn't that answer the question? This verse would seem to say that the book was written by a prophet named Isaiah, living in the kingdom of Israel, about 150 years before the exile. But of course, just because somebody's name is on a biblical book doesn't mean always that they wrote all of it. Samuel is dead before we even get through all of 1 Samuel, so somebody else must have finished that for him. Proverbs starts out as the Proverbs of Solomon, but it also has Proverbs by Agar and Lemuel's mother appended to the end of the book. Somebody wrote the story about how Moses died at the end of Deuteronomy, but presumably it wasn't Moses, though his words make up most of the book. The first two books of the Psalter bear the title, The Prayers of David, even though it also includes psalms by Solomon and Asaph and the sons of Korah, and also some anonymous psalms. Many books of the Bible are more of a team project than we tend to realize. So what about the end of Isaiah? I mean, one of the things you'll notice as you look through Isaiah is that the prophecies of chapters 1 through 39 have formulas like the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. They often include detailed historical contexts like that Isaiah went down to a certain pool and met the king of uh, Judah there. But um, when you get to Isaiah chapters uh, 40 and following, you actually don't find the name of Isaiah written once. I just read the transition from chapter 39 to 40. We go straight from Hezekiah saying, at least there'll be peace and security in my days, to comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So this has led some scholars to the conclusion that these chapters are an anonymous appendix to the book added by a later prophet. But are these scholars right? Now, I don't just want to give a lecture today about an academic debate. That's that's not my purpose. Um, And certainly, how you answer this question does affect how you understand these chapters, when they were written, and to whom they were written. But more importantly, as I was considering this question, it seemed to me that this debate is actually a good way for us to get into what these chapters are all about. Uh, If I didn't think talking about this would help us better understand what God has to say to us in these chapters, I wouldn't ask for your time and attention for it on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to structure my sermon around three main objections brought by those who don't think that Isaiah wrote chapters 40 to 66. There are other objections. I'm just functioning on what, focusing on what I think are the main ones. But I'm going to use these objections as a window into what God is saying to us in these chapters. Because that's why we're here Sunday morning, isn't it? To hear what God has to say to us. The three objections we're going to look at this morning are, number one, the objection that it is impossible for anyone to predict the future in the way that would have been necessary for Isaiah to write this. Number two, the objection that these chapters would not be relevant to people living in Isaiah's day. And number three, the objection that Isaiah's time, Isaiah's time was not yet the time to proclaim comfort to God's people. So there's an objection about predictive prophecy. There's an objection about the relevance of the book. 
and there's an objection about whether it was the time for comfort yet. So the first objection I'd like to consider is that it is impossible for Isaiah to have written chapters 40 and 66 because it is impossible for someone to predict the future in the detail that Isaiah did. To to repeat that, this objection would be that it's impossible for Isaiah to have written these chapters because it is impossible for someone to predict the future in the detail that Isaiah did. I wonder if you've detected that there's a presupposition behind this objection, and that's the presupposition that true predictive prophecy is impossible, either because a God who knows the future doesn't exist, or because he does not intervene in history in a way that interferes in history in this sort of way. You know, this is a great reminder of how hard it is to approach the Bible in a neutral way. That's something that scholars like me want to do. We know that everybody has biases and presuppositions, but we want to control for that as much as possible, to be objective. The problem is that Scripture makes certain claims, certain demands upon us, for instance, that God raised Jesus from the dead, and it's just impossible to be really neutral about these claims. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead should have earth-shadowing consequences for what you believe about God and how you live your life. And the case with prophecies in the Bible is similar. Because when this book tells you that a prophet predicted the future, you either have to accept that a God exists who can tell us the future, and that this prophet is speaking the very words of God to you, or you have to come up with an alternate explanation. Perhaps that could protect a naturalistic view of the world. Like maybe the prophet didn't say it at all, but it was made up after the event much later and passed off as prophecy. Why is this significant for Isaiah 40 through 66? Well, if Isaiah son of Amos in the 8th century BC really wrote this, these chapters, then it's one of the most spectacular examples of predictive prophecy ever. Because these chapters tell us about a king whom God is going to raise up and destroy the empire of Babylon. Mind you, the Babylonians in the 8th century hadn't even beaten out the Assyrians for top nation yet. So they aren't even the dominant world empire yet. And yet in Isaiah 40 through 66, we already find their downfall prophesied and the name of of the king who will do it, Cyrus. Now, why would that be so impressive? Well, uh, Isaiah was called as a prophet in the year King Uzziah died. Maybe we can put that around 740 BC. Hard to be precise about the dates, but around that time. And he prophesied into Hezekiah's reign. So that's up to 686 BC or around then at the latest. Um, assuming that uh, Isaiah didn't die before the end of Hezekiah's reign. Remember that B.C. goes backwards. So the higher number, the number, the older it is. That's really confusing, I know. I have to deal with it every day in my line of work. Anyway, Cyrus didn't capture Babylon until 539 B.C., which would be almost 150 years after the latest date Isaiah could be prophesying. Cyrus wasn't even born until around 600 BC, at least 86 years after Isaiah prophesied. 
That would be like Ulysses S. Grant calling the outcome of the 2020 election complete with the name of the candidate who would win it. So it's not surprising that people who have trouble with the power of prophecy would prefer to date these prophecies after the events they describe, or at least closer to them. This happens with other astoundingly accurate Old Testament prophecies as well, such as the prophecy about the future King Josiah in 1 Kings 13.2, or the detailed description of the struggle between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids in Daniel 11. Now, I think it's fair to admit that such prophecies might not have the same impact for us as the people that live through their fulfillment. Imagine that. Um, There's always going to be some element of trusting the testimony of others who've recorded them for us. But at the same time, it seems a little circular to me to say that a prophecy must date to a point in time after it has been fulfilled, simply because predictive prophecy must be impossible. If you're someone today who's exploring Christianity... Or maybe you've grown up in the church, but now you're trying to figure out if it's really true what you've been taught all these years. I would say this is one of the evidences of the truth of Scripture you should be thinking about. There are other evidences as well for you to think about. Um, but I think it's an important, mi- important to keep an open mind about the possibility of predictive prophecy. Because if the sort of God who could create the entire universe exists, if the sort of God who could raise Jesus from the dead exists, then this is one of the things we would expect him to be able to do. Anyway, if that describes you and you want to talk more about this sort of thing, please let me know. Get in touch. I'd be happy to discuss it further. If you, if you are someone who's already convinced that the Bible is God's word, then you'll probably be inclined to take the idea of predictive prophecy very seriously. This is going to be an important idea to keep in mind as we uh, study this section of Isaiah because it actually turns out to be one of the central emphases of these chapters. That God is able to predict the future through his prophets is a sign to Israel of his reality, power, and sovereignty over history. In contrast to the idols Israel was tempted to worship. It's part of how we are to know that the Lord is God. Let me just pick one example from Isaiah 40 to 66. This is Isaiah 48, verses 3 to 5. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. God has declared of old what he was going to do, and then he has brought it to pass. Uh, You can see that we wouldn't really be reckoning honestly, I don't think, with the claims this book makes on us, We don't take seriously the claim that God has predicted the future long in advance. Uh, Isaiah seems to be making that claim very, very particularly here. And why is God able to do that? Well, it's because he's the true God. He's not like these idols, which have neither knowledge or power and can't do anything to help you. Okay, but why does God have to do that? 
Well, it's because, actually because his people are so stubborn. You're listening to those verses. A spectacular demonstration of God's power will be necessary for them to turn from their idols and worship him. And that's probably why the book of Isaiah contains some of the most protracted, long in advance prophecy in the whole Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why do we have these amazing prophecies so far in advance? Because God's people were so stubborn that he needed to tell them in detail in advance so that they wouldn't come up with another explanation, like that their idols had done it for them. This is something that I want us to think more about as we have the opportunity to look at other chapters in this book. I do think one quick application from this point would be good, though, and that is that God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. That's why he's able to predict the future, because he's able to control the course of world events. And so when God says something will happen, it will happen. That's a comfort to me right now, and maybe it's a comfort to you, especially something worth mentioning after an election, because the world with all its chaos and changes can be a pretty scary place. And we don't know most of what the future will hold, but God does, and what God has promised will come true. Amen? Amen. So that's the first objection from those who don't believe that predictive prophecy is possible. The second objection I'd like to look at is a little different. The other two objections I want to talk to you are actually often made by people who do believe in predictive prophecy. That's a point worth emphasizing. There are many good Christian brothers and sisters who don't believe that Isaiah wrote Isaiah 40 through 66, and I'm going to try to do a good job this morning of being fair to them in how I present these objections. This is pretty important to interpret others charitably when we disagree about them with them on a theological point, right? That's something we want to strive for. I know I personally haven't always done a good job on that myself in the past, but something I'm endeavoring to do. So I'm not looking to throw anybody under the bus here. But the second objection I want to consider is that Isaiah 40 through 66 addresses a point so far in the future that it wouldn't have been relevant to Isaiah's original audience. So maybe somebody who believes that there are other examples of predictive prophecy in the Bible might still say that because Isaiah 40 through 66 doesn't seem relevant to the context of Isaiah in the 8th century, it probably wasn't written then. Here's how theologian and Old Testament professor S.R. Driver puts it. The prophet speaks always in the first instance to his own contemporaries. The message which he brings is intimately related with the circumstances of his time. His promises and predictions, however far they reach into the future, nevertheless rest upon the basis of the history of his own age and correspond to the needs which are then felt. So Driver's not questioning whether prophets can predict the future. Actually, he believes the author of Isaiah 40 to 66 did predict what would happen with Cyrus, just at a point in time much closer to the events. But the concern is that Isaiah 40 to 66 seems to be addressed to people living around the time of Cyrus. So it's hard to see how it would be relevant to Isaiah's own contemporary audience. I have to admit that there's a point to be made behind this objection. I don't know if you noticed Something strange about these verses when we read them today. Look at the words from our text this morning. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, how can this be true if Isaiah prophesied it in the 8th century? Israel had not received God's punishment for her iniquity because she hadn't gone into exile yet, let alone to the point where her warfare was ended. And yet throughout Isaiah 40 through 66, and we'll see this as we look at passages, we find that the destruction of Jerusalem is described in the past tense as if it has already happened. We find the people who are being addressed being addressed as if they were already in exile and the return to the land being described in a way that sounds imminently future. For instance, Isaiah 48.20 says, Go out from Babylon. Now what could it mean to say that before the exile has even happened yet? And to my mind, this is the strongest objection to the idea that Isaiah wrote these chapters. And part of why I mention it is because I want to notice this strange phenomenon that it points up. There are examples of prophecies in the Bible where the coming disaster is described from the vantage point of people mourning it after it takes place. So, for instance, if we turn to chapter 23 in the oracle against Tyre, we'd see Isaiah saying that the merchants of Tyre should mourn its falling, even though he's predicting something future. So he kind of moves to the perspective point of right after the event has happened to kind of give us almost this cinematic description of it. But it's really unique to do that for 27 straight chapters of Scripture. Perhaps, scholars like S.R. Driver argue, it would be simplest to conclude that the person who wrote these chapters lived in that time frame where the chapters are set, after the exile and destruction of Jerusalem, but before God brought his people back from exile. On the other hand, if we want to say that Isaiah wrote these chapters, then we would have to understand him as imagining himself already in that situation in the future and addressing these prophecies to the people. I don't think it's an impossible perspective to take, especially given the emphasis in the book that, I, that these chapters are intentionally addressed as prophecies from long past to the people for their stubbornness. It could be part and parcel of that whole thing. What I want to focus on, though, and really take issue with is Driver's contention that none of these future events would be relevant to Isaiah's generation. And that's partially why I had us read Isaiah 39 today. I wanted us to understand, I, I don't think it's unintentional that Isaiah 39 is put right where it is. Why? Why might we go straight from Isaiah 39 into 40 in the book? Well, doesn't this attitude that says the distant future is not really relevant to my concerns right now actually sound a lot like Hezekiah's bad attitude? Isaiah comes along and tells him that some of his own sons will be eunuchs in Babylon, and he thinks, cool, at least everything will be peaceful in my day. Wow. Think about that. What a reaction to being told that your descendants will be eunuchs in Babylon. How self-centered. And yet Hezekiah's reaction is actually typical of the people of Israel as a whole. 
After all, the people will be described in Isaiah 42, 19 to 20 in this way. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf like my messenger I am sending? Who is blind like my dedicated one? Or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things, you pay no attention. Though his ears are open, he does not listen. So I suppose we ought to hand it to those who are skeptical of Isaiahic authorship here. They seem to at least be right that most Israelites in Isaiah's day would not have considered this message relevant. Evidence? They didn't listen to it. Certainly Hezekiah doesn't see how it's relevant. His alliance with the Babylonians, maybe that's going to lead to consequences down the line for his descendants. But the Assyrians might show up tomorrow and kill everyone. And he's rather counting for Babylonian help on that. And so he reasons, well, we're all dead in the long run, so I might as well do what works now and not worry about the distant future consequences. Don't talk to me about what's going to happen a generation from now. I'm just trying to keep my kingdom together for the next few years. And of course, this has been a theme of Isaiah's whole ministry. The first thing God tells Isaiah after commissioning him in Isaiah 6 to be a prophet is that the people will not listen to him. And as I mentioned in the previous point, it's just this stubbornness of the people that's the reason why God gives them this spectacular prophecy reaching so far into the future. We saw in Isaiah 48 that God himself says that that's the reason. So God is definitely playing the long game here. So it may be true for most Israelites in Hezekiah that they wouldn't find a prophecy about the distant future relevant, but I'm not sure that's a good reason to believe that Isaiah didn't give them one. God seems to have been committed to revealing himself to his people even though they wouldn't listen, because in his sovereignty he knew that they would later, that his word would bear fruit in time. Also, Hezekiah's attitude can't be the one that Isaiah has here. Can it? And what about Isaiah's wife and children and his disciples? The beginning section of the book suggests that although the people may be largely deaf to God, there will be a faithful remnant among them. And so we have to believe that there is a group of people, however small, who wouldn't have Hezekiah's attitude, who did care about what would happen to their children, who cared about what would happen to God's people, who cared about what would happen to God's kingdom. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. I mean, where would you look to for hope? We're getting very close to the point of no return in Israel's history. If you remember your book of Kings, who comes right after Hezekiah? Manasseh. And what's noteworthy about Manasseh? Not only is he the worst king that, is, that Judah ever has, he so spiritually damages the people that after Manasseh, there's no turning the ship around. Even good King Josiah can't save Judah at that point. So where is a faithful Israelite supposed to look for hope in the future? That's assuming that they care about their children and their grandchildren. The only possible hope lies on the other side of exile. Might a message of hope about God's mercy restoring Israel from exile be relevant to them? I think it might be. I also think that there's another point of application here for us. Isn't Hezekiah being held up to us as a negative example 
precisely because it is only the immediate present which is relevant to him. He's building his own little kingdom, and he doesn't see the bigger picture of what God is doing with God's kingdom. Because he's gotten so wrapped up in playing a geopolitical game, maneuvering uh, human strength to protect him and keeping all the pieces where he wants them on the board, uh, he's not relying on the power of God. And there are ways in which we are like Hezekiah. It's a question to ask ourselves this morning. Are we deaf to God's word? Does it seem irrelevant to us? Are there things which God is saying to us in here, in this book, the Bible, that we don't really want to listen to? If so, why? Are there things that we're afraid of? Are, we're things that we're, are there things we're trusting in to deliver us other than God? Some plan we have that we hope will work out better than trusting in God's will. Do you tremble a little bit this morning to see Hezekiah be so deaf to God sending a prophet to confront him directly? It always makes me tremble a little when I read this story. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's the one ringing in our ears as we head into the last section of the book. It's a picture of Israel's stubbornness inexorably pulling them towards God's judgment. It's truly horrifying. We detect in our hearts even a scintilla of that same stubbornness, how quick we should be to repent of it, to plead with God to change our hearts by His Spirit. Because there's nothing more deadly than that kind of spiritual deafness. I think it's something to take some time to think about this morning. Is the Holy Spirit pointing out something like Hezekiah in your heart? Something that if it's left to grow, could make you as deaf to the God's word as Hezekiah is? Is God perhaps saying to you today through his word this morning, Repent of that hardness of hearts and listen to my word. Every time I see this story, it makes me want to think about that again because I'm just so struck with that hardness of Hezekiah and the people. So that's the second objection. The question about how future prophecy could be relevant to Isaiah's day. And the third objection really flows from the second. And that objection is that in Isaiah's day, it was time to proclaim judgment on Israel for their disobedience. But it was not yet time to proclaim God's comfort. To speak to Isaiah's contemporaries, the word of comfort that opens chapter 50 would have been completely inappropriate. Israel hasn't learned their lesson yet. Maybe... This objection might think that Israel on its way to exile really needs to hear the preaching of God's law. And only once they felt the wrath of God's judgment for their law-breaking would they be ready for the gospel of chapters 40 to 66. I'll start by just mentioning that if, if, if that's, and there are some people who make this objection, if that's the interpretation that you take, you're also going to have to take a lot of the stuff in the beginning of the book to be a late addition as well, because there is already a message of grace in there. But I 
also have trouble with this argument because, of course, all of the biblical prophetic books hold out the promise of grace to God's people alongside judgments. Amos is the most unrelenting prophet in his proclamations of judgment, I think, if somebody wants to argue with me about that and argue that a different prophet is, uh, is, is more unrelenting in judgment, then, you know, we can discuss that. But for me, I think it's Amos. And yet even Amos ends his last chapter in chapter 9 with several verses looking forward to God's future grace. Of course, we could always just take all of the grace and say that that was written late too, but at some point it just becomes a circular method. Rather, I think that it's a pattern of God's revelation that even in the midst of proclaiming judgment, God's grace is also held out to the people. God's people are assured that he remains faithful to them even when they are faithless. However much the law may be emphasized, there is never law entirely devoid of gospel in the prophets. And I think it makes sense to think of that small faithful band of Isaiah's followers again. Would it have made a difference to them to know that there was comfort in the future? How kind of God to let them know. How grateful they would have been to have God's comfort announced in advance so that even if the time of comfort had not yet come, it was something they could look forward to. And in these chapters of Isaiah 40 to 66, there is a particular emphasis on this fact that God has been unrelenting in his offer of grace to his people. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, Isaiah 65 2. Indeed, God's people remain hard-hearted even through the exile. That's clear from these chapters. One of the things I want us to notice as we study this section of the book is that it's not because of the people's initiative in exile that God acts to comfort and save them. Causation is the other way around. It is through God's act of salvation that the Spirit is going to be put upon them who enables them to respond to God. God's people do have a hard lesson to learn about his judgment for their disobedience of the law, and they are being called to repentance. But it is through the gospel of God's salvation that the real change in them is going to take place. So this objection as well takes us to a very crucial truth to grasp. That God announces his comfort from the beginning. And if chapters 40 through 66 are really written by Isaiah in the 8th century, then God announced the truth of the future gospel long in advance of the people even receiving their punishment. What a wonderful testament to the unfailing and unflagging nature of God's grace this is. God's salvation of his people is not his response to them. It is rather the expression of his sovereign plan. And what could make that point more clearly than announcing that sovereign plan long in advance? All through the exile, God's people could look forward in hope, waiting for these words to come true. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Even if it wasn't the moment for that to come true yet, they still had the promise of it to look forward to. So I think 
I've given us some reasons to think that Isaiah actually did write these chapters. As we've seen, the main objections to this idea actually run up against the theology of these sections of the book itself, which describes itself as demonstrating God's power to predict the future far in advance, and which calls a faithful remnant to look forward in hope to what God will do, unlike Hezekiah, and which announces ahead of time God's mercy and grace, which perseveres despite his people's sin. But there's one more wrinkle I would like to consider, and that wrinkle makes this sermon into an Advent sermon. We mentioned the scholarly objection that the message of comfort from chapter 40 would not have been relevant in Isaiah's day, since it spoke of a time of comfort that was still long in the future. That kind of raises the question, to what future day would this prophecy be relevant? If it wasn't right for the time of Isaiah, when would it be? An easy answer, but one I think is only partially correct, would be to say that this day of comfort came in the days of King Cyrus, when God restored his people to their land. Certainly there's truth here. God promised to bring his people out of Babylon by the hand of Cyrus, and that did indeed happen. But if you look at the glorious promises of Isaiah 40 to 66, and you put them side by side with the histories of that time, the book of Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you'll notice the mismatch pretty quickly. While the return from exile under Cyrus was an amazing fulfillment of divine prophecy, it was only a partial fulfillment of Isaiah 40 through 66. The promise that God would come to dwell with his people, that he would deliver them from all warfare forever, that he would create a new heavens and a new earth. Those things didn't happen under Cyrus or under Darius or any of the other Persian or Greek kings that came after. The prophecy about Cyrus may be... the prophecy about Cyrus may be one of the most impressive examples of predictive prophecy, but it left God's people still waiting for the final fulfillment of what those chapters pointed to. So it's, we shouldn't be surprised. Many centuries later, when we turn to the Gospel of Luke and we find a man named Simeon, and we are told that he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. A little clarification here. The Greek word translated as consolation in most of our English Bibles is the word paraklesis. And in the Greek translation of the beginning of Isaiah 40, the double command comfort, comfort is the Greek word parakleta. Parakleta. It's the same Greek root. Maybe that's a difficult connection for English speakers to make. But I think that for Luke's hearers, many of whom would have been used to reading Isaiah in Greek, the point would have been clear. Simeon was still waiting for Isaiah 41 to come true. He was still waiting for the comfort that God had promised to Israel. Just like Isaiah's followers, looking forward, hoping in God's promise. So it actually turns out that the return of the exile under Cyrus is not the context of when Isaiah 40 came true either. If we're to take Luke seriously, then 
Whenever it was written, it was pointing to a, a time far in the future. Simeon is still waiting. But then one day, some parents brought a little child in to be circumcised. And by the power of the Spirit, Simeon finally saw it. Here, in the form of this little child, he had finally met the comfort which God had promised to Israel. And taking that child in his arms, he praises God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, this child is the glory of the Lord, which Isaiah says will be revealed to all flesh and will be a light to the nations. And indeed, throughout the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, we keep finding quotes from these chapters of Isaiah 40 to 66, and indeed the whole book of Isaiah, our Advent reading this morning. Uh, we read both uh, a section from Isaiah, and then we saw the Gospel say that it was fulfilled in Christ. And incidentally, that's another reason to think that Isaiah wrote these chapters. It's that the apostles seem to speak as if this was the case. John tells us in his Gospel, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, which is Christ's glory, and spoke about him. So the prophecy about Cyrus may be impressive, but for Jesus' first disciples, what was even more significant was the way that they found the life of their Savior Jesus portrayed in these chapters. That God's glory would be revealed not through a leader who would defeat the nations in warfare, but through a suffering servant who would give up his life in love for people of every tribe and nation and language. That by his spirit they might be brought to God. What about you? Do you need to hear these words of comfort this morning? Do you feel the weight of your own sin? Do you feel the weight of the warfare and hardship in the world? In many ways, we are still waiting for the complete fulfillment of this promise, aren't we? We're waiting for God's comfort to finally swallow up all the darkness in this world. And this waiting connects us with the generations of Old Testament saints since Isaiah's day who looked forward to God's promise. And yet... Simeon shows us that in another sense, God's comfort is already here. These words of Isaiah 40 have been spoken definitively in Christ. In this small child, the death knell has already been rung for Satan's kingdom. In Christ and in his cross, the battle has been definitively won and our sin has been paid for. When we behold Christ with the eyes of faith, we see God's word made flesh, and we hear him say tenderly to us that our warfare is over, that our sin is paid for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign over history and what comfort we take in that fact. We especially thank you and when the time was right, you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law for us, that he might suffer and die to redeem us. 
And we thank you that you have sent your spirit that we might become your servants. That we might be witnesses to the great love and grace you have shown to us in our sin. We ask that you would impress these truths deeply upon our heart this Advent season as we remember your Son and his incarnation. And we ask that you would keep us safe and protect us from the schemes of the devil. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've heard about God's great promise and gift to us, let us sing a hymn of response.